Good evening, Mr. Turpin. That's a very sultry turn you have there, John. Good evening. How are you? Yes, I'm wearing a, a black blouse and little else. <laughs> delightful. Uh, are you well? <clears throat> I'm very good, thank you. Yeah? Uh, yeah, you? Not bad at all. Good. Not bad at all. Been at work this week in Shoreditch, but I've had today and tomorrow off, so um, it's nice to be able to catch up on a few things and not have to commute. So yeah, not bad at all. Uh, hang on. Important bit out of the way first. You know when you bleed a radiator? <laughs> and that kind I'm- of quite thick sort of black, rusty water comes out. Yeah, I think I've got the same thing. Oh, yeah. What have you got? I've got Cast Iron Billy. Oh, by sounds good. Pressure Drop. Great, great name for a uh, beer company. Yeah. Um, and it's a brown, Imperial Brown Stout. Ah, I also have an Imperial Stout. How, uh, how strange. Uh, this is a, an Imperial Extra Double Stout. The Tsar... Of all Russian stouts. <laughs> I didn't know they made do they make stouts? Well in there's Russia? a thing, isn't there? There's an Imperial stout is a is a Russian thing. Is it? Uh, but this uh this this Tsar of all Russian stouts comes from Lewis in East Sussex. Uh and it is jet black. And nine percent. Right. What's the brewery there? Um oh. I don't know, it's Harvey and Sons. Harvey and Sons, isn't it? Yeah. Blimey, that's good beers. What, what percentage is that? Because I've just looked at mine and it is outrageous. Mine's nine. 10.5. <laughs> this top, is like top trump. You've been top trumped. I think there will be top trumping after this one. <laughs> ah, so that bit out of the way. Welcome to North v South, podcast about but not about design. This is episode 60. Uh, oh. Turpin. And and that uh, little uh, marsupial-like noise at the other end of Skype there was uh, John Elliman. Yeah. Uh, episode 60. Yeah, we haven't done anything for 60, have we? Or tried, I haven't thought, I, di- I didn't even no. think about it being 60. No, it Rats. didn't occur to me either. Yeah. Trying to squeeze some, we'll, we'll have to post-rationalise that, like all, we good will. De- all good designers. What's that in wedding anniversaries? Ruby. Is that Ruby? No, it's not Ruby. Is it Diamond? I, I don't know, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, blimey, that beer's strong. Uh, right, how's your week been? It's been uh, okay, thanks, yeah. I'm uh, I'm trying to think what I've been up to. Um, I'm finishing off a website, uh, and it's now in testing, so it'll probably be launched tomorrow. Cool. I'd have thought, uh, if, if I get some feedback. Wow. Uh, no, um, no, yeah, I've got a bit a bit to do on that, but I've had some client work. Everyone's coming back from holidays now, so um, yeah, started to get a bit more work on, which has been I've been really grudgingly accepting because <laughs> <laughs> I've been quite enjoying thinking about and sort of, you know, getting on with my own stuff. Yeah, um, it's exciting. Taking so long to do it, but um, it's you know, I think the biggest problem I've got is my own self is just motivation. Um, I just don't have the energy that I used to, you know, even 10 years ago of, of actually following through on, on ideas. And I was never the best yeah. at following, you know, I was good at coming up with ideas, but never the best at, uh, at formula, uh, formalizing them. But, you know, I, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I'm feeling really good about it. It looks great and, uh, it feels simple and easy to use. So yeah. I think, you know, that's the, that's the main thing. Um, well, I just got to start thinking it. about products to make now. Um, yeah. Have you got, have you got one in mind for your, your first, first product? Yeah. Well, I think it will be this notebook. Mm. Um, but I was also thinking of lots of other things, you know, um, but that might be on North v South rather than, rather than on my own site. But, um, uh, yeah. Uh, what else have we been up to? Um, I started running again and, uh, it's nice to be back running. Um, I've been enjoying a bit of uh, Strava motivation, which is um, Strava's a. Do you know? Have you heard of it? I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people use it for cycling, don't they? Yes. Um, and uh, it comes recommended by a couple of cycling friends, but the running's really good on it as well because uh, it allows you to um, draw sort of maps out on 
<clears throat> on old Google Maps or wherever. Have you been, have you been drawing rude pictures with your runs? <laughs> what? Across the fields of Hampshire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, I haven't. No, but um, but basically what what it does is if, if I think this is how it works, if somebody runs or bikes a certain little route um, over and over again and lots of people do it, it mm. starts to record it and it calls it a segment. And then you start appearing in the charts for the particular segment. And uh, Alad came down at the weekend, and he he he's really got into running, and he's a he's a big lad, so he he runs a bit faster than me. And um, he uh, he discovered one. There's a hill near here that you have to charge up. Mm. It, it's killer, but um, yeah, he's already fourth on the top of the list. I'm about four hundredth, <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite good. Um, it's good. Sort of seeing, uh, discovering an app that actually motivates you if you are into that kind of thing. Um, well, that's what I'm going to need when I start my marathon training, John. Yeah, well, I've tried a lot of the others, and Strava seems to be definitely the most sort of pointed towards professional, uh, or or at least motivational. Um, okay. More than I'll just saying beeping occasionally and saying get up, it actually <laughs> gives you something to aim towards. Yeah. So yeah, how is it? When when are you running this marathon? Is it this um, year? No, no, it's the London Marathon. <laughs> yeah, next year. So it's uh, so, mid-April, I think. Right. If I get in, I mean, I they don't tell you until November if you've. Uh, oh well, there's no, there's no point for there's, the ballot. There's no point starting until November then. Well, I have to <laughs> because otherwise I haven't got time to train. Yes, so I need to start my training pre knowing if I'm going to get in or not. Uh, yeah. So I think I think by November I need to be able to do. Somewhere between five and ten k. Yeah, that's only two months, isn't it? Yeah, you need to okay. get get a wriggle on. I do, don't I? Yeah. Okay. All right, I'll go out for a quick jog after this. <laughs> after, this after this bottle of imperial Brown stout. stout. I'm yeah. not going to be able to speak after this. <laughs> uh, I definitely noticed uh, editing last week's show um, a, a very much a slur to my. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I didn't notice at the time, but I'd had a beer as well. So, um, but I think you were were you on your third by the time we finished the show. It might have been. Yeah, yeah, good work. Well, you know, someone bought me a box of very dangerous beer. Well, there you go. <laughs> I'll have to drink them all at once. Uh, 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 so, is that your week? Work and running. That's not bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think what else there is. Is there anything else? No, I'll mark this bit. Well, what else have you been up to? Uh, well, since uh, since we spoke last time, I had a, we uh, we had a wedding on the Thames on an island in the Thames at uh, Ravens Eight near Thames Ditton, which was nice. Uh, it's quite unusual to have to load up all the flower arrangements and everything onto a boat, but that all went well. And then I've been working this week in Shoreditch. She's been mind-numbingly boring. Um, I think I'm safe to say that because I don't think anyone listens to the show. Um, it's just I kind of production work rather than any design work, and it's just repetitive and monotonous and tedious, and it's been driving me bonkers. Um, so it's good to not be there today and be able to get some drawing done. Um do you think that is because you uh, because you know you've got stuff that uh, you really want to do? That's definitely a part of it. But I think part of it is it's just retail design um, because everything is you know you've got two two seasons a year uh, and everything just repeats every few months. So you're just doing the same uh, the same stuff just with different pitches, basically. Which isn't very exciting, um, and it doesn't take much thinking about. Which is fine to a certain point where you can just kind of blindly do stuff and let your mind drift. But when it's day in day out, it's a bit much. Mm. Um, but you know that's fine. Um, I bought two thousand AD this week. Oh yeah, and I was really disappointed. <clears throat> um, the art just doesn't. It's just not up to scratch, I don't think, at the minute. I don't know if this is a particularly bad time, but there's certainly no artist in there I know of um, this week. And it just, I just didn't think it was great. Um, 
Do you think that's because it's going through a um, the doldrums in terms of storytelling no, no, and artists, or do you think it's I... because we're so uh, inundated now with comics? You know, the most amazing comics that you can buy. Um, Maybe, whereas, but... you know, when we were growing up, it was that that was the only thing you could pick up on the on the high street. Yeah, pretty much. It? But it was, you know, it was so, well. There was that or the Marvel and DC stuff, but. Yeah. 2000 AD was so much better art-wise yeah. than the American comics. Um, and now it's not even as if it's just a different style to the American comics. It just didn't look as accomplished. So I don't. I obviously haven't read it often enough in the last few years to know if this is just a, a blip or whether it's just simply not as good as it used to be. Um, and I guess there's an element of nostalgia and rose-tinted glasses about it. Um, but yeah, really disappointed. Um, probably put me off buying it for another couple of years, which is sad. Mm. Um, I haven't been reading any comics. I'm still reading <laughs> The Stand, mm-hmm. but I'm nearly at the end. Yeah. Um, Did you ever finish the Neil Stevenson? No, which is why I'm kind of determined. But, you know, I've said it, I said it last week. Uh, yeah, Stephen King writing. Oh, God, it's painful. Really yeah. painful. Um, but I, I have been, I've been trying to play games. Um, I don't know. It sounds like I'm <laughs> making a big excuse. There. I've been trying to waste my time playing computer games, but I was very kindly given an Xbox One. Um, Good lord! Yeah, which is one of the new generation uh, yeah. uh, consoles. I haven't played a console since um, I had my PlayStation Two, which I found at my mum's last time I was there and plugged it into a telly, and it doesn't work on HD tellies very well. Uh. You get a very big black, well, we're going to talk about this later. You get a very yeah. big black sort of letterbox around it and it's incredibly yeah. pixelated. What, um, uh, what have you been playing then? Sonic the Hedgehog. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, which is really weird, isn't it? It's a, an incredibly powerful machine that's trying to emulate a 1980s uh, yeah. 16-bit machine and, and kind of does it. It just doesn't have that excitement of playing it and um, but i've been playing it with my daughter and it's it's very funny um but yeah there's this sort of whole strata of the of gaming community that i kind of missed out on which is the kind of indie um uh, sort of i don't know what they call it on xbox xbox live they used to call it but basically right. they're like little mini games or or, yeah. or or indie games and they're only sort of anything from five up to 15 16 quid but they're fully yeah. featured games um, so you can spend all your money on those. And the other thing that's happened is obviously downloadable games. I've never had that mm. before. So all um, uh, my brother-in-law gave me his login. So I've got he's and he's downloaded me a load of his games because I can piggyback on the back of his account. So right. I've got a load of uh, what they call AAA games. Right. That I've uh, I've kind of been playing at. The the one big thing I had to take away from the games is the, yeah the graphics are amazing, but the gameplay as it is is still exactly the same as it was fifteen <laughs> ten years ago on the PlayStation mm. Two, PlayStation One. Um, it really hasn't moved on much. I don't think. Um, it's just you know you do you, the typical shooter game is you go in there, you get taught how to play the game. Um, there's lots of you know com links with you know, yep. sort of Americanisms and all sorts of things like that. Um, and then you just go and blast the hell out of whatever. Um, it, it really hasn't moved on in, in terms of any of the games I played yet of the, of the narrative. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not a big gamer. I haven't switched on my PlayStation four for two years. I don't think, um, <clears throat> I think the, the games that, that are, Innovative, are kind of few and far between. There's one called Last of Us, which was yeah, supposed I, to be quite incredible. I want to play that, but uh, it's only on the PlayStation, isn't it? Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. I got raised eyebrows for uh, asking if I could get that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah. I, I was given it by a, um, a gaming nut. But I am enjoying FIFA. I'm playing. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I've never, I've never got into football games. Yeah. Not, not sort of FIFA or... What? Uh, what's the other one? The big one? Um, uh, I can't even remember. Pro Evo, is it? Yeah, Pro like Evo. That? I used to love that on the PlayStation One. Uh-huh. No, the the um, I, I'm quite enjoying career mode. You can actually just play as a single player. You can make yeah. it look exactly like you. Give him a name, and then it just plays like sort of a player manager. So I'm playing for Exeter City. 
<laughs> so I've played a couple of games of that. But anyway, yeah, it's really interesting having have you, have you being, made your being a real... Op- your, have you made him your height? Yeah, he's tiny. Um, he's a lot better looking than I am, of course. Nonsense. Uh, and what is it? Uh, TV wise, um, I saw, uh, I didn't think I'd enjoy it at all, but I have to say it was an absolutely brilliant, um, uh, little mini series called Cuckoo's Calling. Yeah. No spoilers. Uh, Cause I've got this recorded. Absolutely loved it. Um, yeah. loved the art direction and the opening titles look fantastic. The main actor, Tom Burke, who was, if you saw um, War and Peace, which was on a couple of years ago on BBC, I didn't. Uh, he, he's, he's just Oliver Reed uh, to me. Just, <laughs> yeah, he's, um, yeah, he's, a, he's brilliant in it. Uh, in fact, most of the actors were good. Um, a couple of, you know, mishits, but there always are. But one thing that was great about it was the dialogue was brilliant. Uh, which the BBC often get horribly wrong. There's a lot of mumble, mm. mumblecore going on. But it just, and London looks fabulous. And there wasn't any of this sort of turning the corner and you're in Greenwich and turning the corner and you're in Trafalgar Square. Yeah. It was, it, you know, it is, it is, you know, set in Soho is where he's, his stomping ground is. It's really, really, really good. Cool. Well, I look forward to watching that. Yeah. I really, really loved it. Um, so, yeah. Um, We're talking of watching things, I watched um, Alien Covenant this morning. Oh, what's that? Is that the new so one? Yes. That's Ridley's new addition to the alien series after uh, Prometheus. And uh, yeah, it's better than Prometheus, <laughs> um, which doesn't take a lot of doing. Uh, it's, it's a bit of an odd one. It left me, I wasn't disappointed by it. I wasn't thrilled by it. I was a bit, it kind of left me just a bit puzzled, really. It was a bit of a mishmash of things. There were quite a few throwbacks to Alien. Whereas in Prometheus, you never really got to see the the classic alien creature. In this, you do, and there are a couple of kind of direct throwbacks to the original film. And one to Blade Runner. So there's been all this rumour about, does Alien exist in the same universe as Blade Runner? And there's a bit in this uh, where the robot character utters a line in exactly the same way that Rutger Hauer utters a line in uh, Blade Runner. Really? What's, yeah. What's the line? He says, that's the spirit, mm. which uh, Rutger Hauer says when um, Harrison Ford tries to shoot him. He says, that's the spirit. And it's it's the way he says it. It's exactly the same. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's just a little hint, which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, God forbid that Ridley tries to tie the two together in Alien Runner 6 or something. <laughs> I think that the whole appeal of the Alien films is that unknowing and, and trying to backstory it. It just mm. has no, I have no interest whatsoever. Yeah, well, the new Blade Runner film that's coming out, they've released uh, one or two little short films online directed by Jake Scott, I think, um, that give you a bit of the backstory to the film which is weird. But then I watched Covenant today and in the extras to that, that you get on digital downloads, which is usually behind the scenes stuff and deleted scenes. There's extra bits that you can watch that give you background. And it's, it's a weird way to, it's like, well, maybe we didn't explain it well enough. So we'll, we'll throw out some little short films. What was that? What was that film that Ridley Scott made with a good year? Was it called? Have you seen that? Was that the one with um, Russell Crowe? I haven't seen that one, no. Well, I saw it um, when we went away a week before last, and uh, mm-hmm. it kind of like brought home um, Ridley Scott's low moments. <laughs> well, he did no wrong, I think, until Columbus 1492, and then it all went pear-shaped for a while. Was that about oh, the, de- the detective in the future? The- yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Now that would be a good comic book that you have to yes. make, Columbo, Columbo, Columbo. fourteen ninety two. Should we uh, should we talk about some news? Go for it. Well, I'll start with um, something about Blade Runner. I found an article, um, and it's uh, I think it's a, a guy that talks about films. It's called Gauss Works. 
and it's an article about the trouble with Deckard's blaster from Blade Runner. And it's not about the trouble with Deckard's blaster at all. It's about how difficult it is to replicate that little bit of genius that sometimes happens in filmmaking. So Deckard's blaster, it talks about as being a, an absolutely classic bit of movie making, prop design, kit bashing, um, because it, you know, it's, it looks like a real gun because most of it is a real gun. Most of it's like a, a Steyr Manlicka two 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 gun, and then they put these kind of amber hand grips on it and stuff, and a double. Tr- uh, it's got the double trigger from the original gun. This is kind of how good that gun is as a piece of movie design. And then they look at uh, the blaster from the new film, which is just kind of, they've tried to obviously do something different to try and make it iconic, but it just doesn't work. And he talks about how the fact that it's because it doesn't have the same authentic uh, kind of ancestry that the the original prop had because obviously that was from an original gun and this one that's just been designed from the ground up and they've used odd sort of carbon fiber material on the handle and then the, the barrels over engineered and nothing really ties together so it looks odd but it doesn't look good odd um and it's a really interesting little article and it includes links to uh, adam savage do you know him he did um uh, what's the american program where they kind of blow things up a lot uh, Mythbusters. Ah, not Scrap Team yeah. Challenge. <laughs> no. Uh, so there's a little video clip from Adam Savage, and he built one himself. Um, and then he talks about uh, Rogue One, the Star Wars film, that get the props right because they're all older guns in that kind of are based on real guns. Um, and it's a really interesting article about how these things kind of come to be and how difficult it is to try and create something iconic in film. Yeah, so it's well worth a read. I think we when we when we talked about Blade Runner in depth before was the thing that I loved the most and drew obsessively was guns with lights on them, you know, on the mm. side, little LED. Yeah. I had no idea what that was, but it was so appealing. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I, I, that is an iconic piece. And you're right if you don't, um, and and this will this will jump to our main topic today is if you don't have authenticity in uh, in objects that you create, especially when you're trying to um, do sort of future futurism or 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 stare into the future, the human race is really really good at, at being doubtful about that. Yeah, um, I know that sounds like a really convoluted way of saying it, but I think um, you know if 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 once the human race is is huge is used to something being in circulation. They very quickly assume that it's always been there. Um, and I think we'll come back to that. And I think that's why guns that are over-designed just look so mm. ridiculous. Um, yeah, and, and why maybe the lightsaber, well, the original lightsaber, was so appealing is it because it was so simple. You know, yeah. it, it could have been a, you know, a, a gas lighter, really. You well, know, do, you know um, what, do you know what they, they were made from? No. They were made from industrial like camera flash um, rods. Okay. You know, like the big metal kind of old-fashioned camera flashes that made a big noise. Yeah. They were the – most of the lightsaber is just one of those oh, right. with very little else added. So, again, it's that kind of instant authenticity of a, a believable object. <laughs> well, that that's a great site. Where did you find that? Uh, I don't know where I found that. <laughs> it was probably on Twitter. Mm. Most of the things I found are on Twitter. I like the the uh, the header of it. It looks like it's been printed onto comic book paper. Yeah, yeah it's a nice little blog. Yeah, a lot of mine are left over from last week. I had quite. Yeah, a we had lot. lots of news last week, didn't we? Um, but my first one is going to be a Kickstarter. Yay! <laughs> I correctly guessed the right one to click. <laughs> Um, the the app that um, I've been using Astro um, Pad, which allows you to project your Mac onto your iPad, mm-hmm. um, which I'm still struggling using all the time. I find it much easier 
to <laughs> to jump back onto the Mac. It's, yeah. I don't know. There's a disconnect between the two still. Um, they they've kickstarted a tiny little device um called Luna, and basically you plug it into your Display Port of your Mac. You need a Mac to do it, and you run software, and it will mirror the Mac on the iPad. Yeah, clever. Um, so it's kind of going for the other market, not the um, illustration market, but yeah. uh, people doing presentations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not entirely convinced of the use of it. I think it. I think that they're just trying to expand their market. But I, I, what I really like about it is the plastic enclosure that the software's in is really nicely designed, sort of. It is polygon I, I've, shape. I've, I've thought of a an instant problem for it though. What's that? The new MacBooks only have one port. <laughs> yeah, but do, do they have a display port as well or not? No, uh, no. It's all it, this, whatever it is, the universal Apple port that you can charge things with and everything. Uh, is it available um, as a as a USB-C or whatever it's called? Uh, oh, yes, it is. It oh. comes as a mini display port. Or a USB C, so that's fine. It's USB C, isn't it? The uh, power and data connection that Apple yeah. are using for their new stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That looks really smart. Yeah, like, had uh, a, they were going for thirty thousand gold, which I think is, is is a ridiculously low amount of money for a bit of hardware as as popular as their software is. Um, so they've obviously overrun that by quite a long way. They are yeah. at four hundred twenty six thousand dollars at the moment. Yeah, $65 it costs to get a copy. It's expensive. One. It is quite expensive. Um, not as uh, expensive as a second monitor, though. Yeah, but most, uh, if you've got a 12 inch iPad, fine. But if you've mm. just got the, if you've got the 10 and 9 inch, that's not big enough to do anything on. Yeah. You know, the, the, if you sat, sit that next to a 27 inch iMac, <laughs> it's not really yes. going to be very helpful. Yeah, the only thing you're going to use it for is. Is running like a standalone app like Twitter or uh, you know video app or music or something, isn't it? Yeah, or uh, you could have the. I guess you could have the iPad in an enclosure like a booth, um, mm. and underneath it, a laptop running it wirelessly, which would be pretty cool. Um, and yeah. I, I guess what they're talking about is that they're trying to make the interface with the Mac uh, wireless, as in the yep. i uh, the OS. But um, it clear there will clearly be limitations as to what you can do. Yeah, I guess if it works, it would be handy, you know, if you're working on a laptop and you're working in InDesign or Photoshop to put all your palettes and stuff over there so you can kind of have all your screen real estate on your laptop for the, the actual document you're working on or image. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm still thinking, though, that you'd have, um, if you've got a laptop and you want a, a standalone screen, the screen is about the same amount as money as a as an iPad. So, mm. but, you know... <clears throat> Well, good luck. I to guess them. this is—it's easy for to carry both of these around, isn't it? So you can work anywhere. Yeah, yeah. They—they've—you know—they've smashed their goals. So. Well, yeah. Well, there's enough people. Uh, think there's it's a good no idea, way they were—they were, were going to fund that on thirty thousand dollars. Depends. I mean, maybe, maybe there's not much to it. I mean, I guess most of this stuff is software. Mm. So, I don't know. But yeah, they—how much have they made? Four hundred twenty-six thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Nice bit of kit. I like that. It's a good Kickstarter. Uh, I have got another article that I've come across, which is a good read. It's a really good read if you like uh, Akira, the uh, seminal Japanese manga comic or the anime film. Not not the Japanese furniture store. No. <laughs> uh, no, Jonathan. Oh dear! Um, it's a it's a, an interview in Forbes for some reason with uh, Katsuhiro Otoma, who's the creator of Akira and um, many other manga and anime uh, uh, things. Um, but it's a really good article because it's quite in depth, as you'd expect from somewhere like Forbes. It talks a lot about his background and kind of how he became interested in art and how his career started. Um, and it talks a lot about kind of his approach to storytelling and design. So if you're a fan of 
Akira, manga. It's it's kind of essential reading, really. Talks about how you went about designing the um, the bright red motorbike in Akira as well, which is one of those iconic uh, objects. Uh, so if you like um, anime, if you like Akira, if you like Japanese culture, have a look on Forbes.com, and there's a great interview in their box office section with uh, Katsuhiro Otomo. Mm. It's got a great name as well. Yeah, I, I, I shall read that. Um, mm. uh, two shows that are on, um, both London-centric, I'm afraid, um, Northern Lovers, but uh, uh, the first one is um, Winnie the Pooh, the first ever big exhibition coming to the V&A, which I think will be fantastic. Um, filled with all sorts of artifacts um, and it's being uh, some settings are being designed by Tom Piper the uh, chap who designed all the poppies oh, that, okay. were, that, yeah. were, that filled the uh, Tower of London's mm. moat as it were um, but they've got the original bears there they've got some of the drawings and photos and it's aiming at a young market in terms of families with their kids which the V&A hasn't really done um, and has actually been in the news for being a bit of an idiot recently, hasn't it? Of um, somebody being told off for breastfeeding in the yes, yes, in amongst all the <laughs> in nude amongst statues. all the uh, nude statues, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. um, it's quite clever of the V&A as well because this ties in. There's a, a film out um, at the moment about A.M. Mill um, about his kind of backstory about his time in the war and stuff. Oh, so right. it's quite a big film. And then there's another film coming out, which a friend of mine is working on at the minute, which is about uh, the real Christopher Robin. Um, but that's produced by Disney. So it's got all the classic Disney iterations of A.A. Milne's characters it, uh, kind of appearing almost in like a um, Calvin and Hobbes style thing where, they, you know, Christopher Robin's uh, toys become these real characters. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite a big time for Winnie the Pooh and A.A. Milne. Um, I don't think you can beat E.H. Shepard's illustrations myself. No. But, uh, beautiful. And the second show is at the Welcome Collection in uh, NW1, uh, Euston Road, I think they are. Mm. Uh, it's called Can Graphic Design Save Your Life? And it follows the the theme that... Uh, Rob and I have been talking about is, you know, can design do important things in life? And um, this one is looking at medical design. And they both look like really good shows for uh, for North v South to go and visit. Um, yeah. I don't know when either of them start. I, I'm full <laughs> of information, aren't I? Uh, that one starts uh, the 7th of September. So today, the Can Graphic Design Save Your Life till the 14th of January. And the Winnie the Pooh isn't until the 9th of December. Okay. And it's it runs through till April, so it's obviously a big old show. <clears throat> yeah. Um, that's quite interesting, that welcome uh, collection one, though. Yeah, it's got some amazing uh, pill, you know, tablet box designs, which I yeah. absolutely love. I've done a bit of that. Have I've you? Of, I've done a bit of medical packaging design, yeah. Oh. It also includes some stuff by Morag Myerscough, who we've mentioned on the show. Yes, he's got a hospital, I saw. Vivid kind of geometric uh, patterns and things. Yeah, big fan of hers. Um, mm. Yeah, so uh, it looks like a good one to go and go and have a gander about. Yeah, absolutely. Have we got time for one more, one or two more bits of news before we get on to the main topic? Let's stretch out. <laughs> 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 the uh, James Dyson Award uh, for Design and Innovation has been won this year by, this is the UK James Dyson Award, has been won by Royal College of Art graduate Ryan Yassin, who's tackling the issue of sustainability in children's clothing. And I think this is one of those design awards that nothing tangible will come of this, but it's really clever and looks great. So he, uh, if you have kids, you know that when you buy them, clothes they grow up them super quick so he's designed a fabric which is made up of kind of a a geometric uh it's quite hard to describe uh kind of a folded a little bit like issey miyaki used to do kind of really folded pleated fabric which expands and 
grows with the child. Um, and it kind of looks fab in a futuristic kind of Japanese way. Um, really clever in terms of kind of technical now, so I think, to, to put this together. But it's a really interesting idea. I don't think we'll see many kids wearing it, but I'm sure they'll, you know, there'll be some use for for this fabric and this technology that he's he's kind of conjured up. I mean, I think the technology itself is is simple in terms of its kind of pleating and the kind of arrangement of the, the way the fabric's put together. But it's very very clever. It looks fab. Looks you know super sci-fi. Yeah. Good luck trying to dress your child with that every day. <laughs> well, the the only thing I thought was, how does it just not when you're trying to pull it over your kid's feet? How does it just not all unravel? <laughs> and you're left with you know three feet of extra leg trying to dress your two year old. I don't know, but congratulations to Ryan. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I you know, like like you say, I don't think it's got any practical use <clears throat> in uh, children's clothing whatsoever uh, they, they, they quote that two thousand pounds on clothing by the time their child reaches three um wow. i think that's parents who haven't discovered ebay <laughs> where you can pick up a pair of 40 quid trainers for two quid yeah quite happily um but yeah <laughs> i don't know it's all of it. it it's it's yeah it's proof of proof of concept stuff isn't it exactly yeah but i thought that looked quite smart yeah good story Two quick, two quick stories. First one is in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, a misplaced apostrophe cost uh, a council uh, apparently twelve hundred quid. Uh, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Dickens apostrophe s. Right. They, they Why re- did it cost them? Well, because it, his name's Charles Dickens. Yeah. But, um, so but they, they put reprinted the, it. Yeah, they reprinted it, which is like what, you've already you're already embarrassed. Why bother reprinting it? Yeah, was my my comment about it that uh, you know the media love to uh, to get snarky about misspelt stuff, and then the other one was a really poor show by um, uh, Cycling Magazine, Cycling Weekly, uh, had left a placeholder in their um, printed media with token attractive women placed on it. Yes, um, over a female rider who already uh, are misrepresented in cycling press because it's quite a macho yeah industry i'd say it just goes to show as designers don't put fake text into boxes yeah is there anything <laughs> you've put in a text box ever ever made it through to print i don't think so you no i don't know i think i've been i think i've been okay on that regard yeah no oh <clears throat> uh, should we go on to our main topic have you got any let's bits? um no. We went to see um, Dunkirk a few weeks ago and everyone's been talking about it for the last couple of months. And I was sent a really good film by um, Alid, my brother-in-law, by a chap called Charlie Lynn, who apparently used to do the film show with um, uh, Claudia Winkleman. I must admit, I haven't watched it since Barry left. No, I haven't. Um, To do his pickled onions. Yeah. Apparently his onions are well pickled now. Yeah. Um, and he produced a video essay called Frames and Containers, uh, which is a fascinating look at how filmmakers change aspect ratios to suit storytelling. Um, and it all comes from a, a chap called Eisenstein who made, um, amongst others, um, <coughs> the battleship Potemkin. Yeah, uh, and he wrote a an essay uh, called the dynamic frame, which uh, sort of told film or uh, yeah, sort of evangelized the use of dynamic frame in 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 filmmaking, and by that he meant changing the frame shape and ratio to suit the story that you're telling. Um, and it, uh, from what he can find in the, from what the cha- uh, chat Charlie can find in um, in his film is that only one film was was really made in that way. The frame changed, um, but he it also sort of alludes to the frame that we watched um, Dunkirk in. Uh, if you saw it in IMAX, um, it is an extraordinary 
ratio because it's almost television like um mm. rob will probably have the uh, the accurate statistics of what that is i think is it one to 33 oh god don't ask me now we'd have yeah. to we'd have to drop that one in <laughs> um but it feels very um very much as if you are inside the action um it's above and below you as well as to the side and our question was why are films widescreen you know why have we got now these enormously wide uh, television screens in our living rooms um and why did cinema become obsessed with with the widescreen and we we want to talk about not just that but also why do we put things in frames and containers um and perhaps what's the difference between a frame and a container and and uh and sort of explore that discussion really um we've already spoken before the show about how difficult this is without sounding like <laughs> either ignoramuses or uh, know-it-alls so i will hand it over to the know-it-all i don't think there's much chance of either of us sounding no, like I know-it-alls don't. In this i don't think so well i thought it's one of those in, you look at it in a really broad sense you know why why is the tv the aspect ratio it is why are films the aspect ratio they are and that you know, we're not going to really touch on that too much tonight, but, you know, why is everything else the same aspect ratio? Why all his notes. <laughs> why, <laughs> you know, why are newspapers the, the format they are? Why are paperback books? And I think a lot of it probably comes from the initial technology, and certainly that's where film got its original aspect ratio from. Was the technology, which I think you've got a bit more information on. Who was it created the uh, uh, the original cinema um, well, it's cameras? Tom, well, to, it's Thomas Edison created the format for um, 35mm. Yeah. Which I was really surprised to find that, because um, I just thought it was still cameras that drove the technology. But it seems that they developed very much hand in hand and actually it was film technology that drove 35 mil uh the fact that it was on a roll was was seen suddenly by the still image makers who were using plates to be a really efficient way of um of loading multiple uh images into into a single camera yeah um but one of my things you know one of my stats that i got was by 1916 kodak had 30 different lines of camera each with a dozen different and not each of them, sorry, with a dozen different aspect ratios that were all being manufactured at the same time. That's strange, isn't it? Yeah, because, and, and this is what we were talking about, uh, I was talking about earlier in the show is, you know, this is what you kind of assume that these things have always been there. So you never question, you know, the the biggest question to me is why 4-3? Why is, why is yeah. the ratio of our, t- of our old CRT televisions? Um, why was it 4-3? Um, or what cinema called one. Point three three, or yeah, yeah. And they might call it one point one point three three, or yes. Yeah, so, so even if you think, well, it's it's it happened that way because of you know it was all about the room between the sprockets on the camera that allows for the certain area of a film to be exposed. But then it's, yeah, but why was it that size, you know, <laughs> that format? There's the, you know, there must have been, you know, maybe Edison just thought, you know, maybe that maybe it was, you know, my my machine milling equipment can only make something this big. Well, he was buying the film off of another company who had already manufactured the, the, uh, the film and they had made well, it without in, a camera. T- <laughs> that well, camera they had their own on. camera system, but he was buying it for his, um, because before, uh, they started with cellulose, they had paper. It was paper based. Um, okay. in France it was anyway. And so he, he ordered, um, this film of, and, and I can't off the top of my head remember the name of the company, but they were another New York-based um, camera company, right. and they made they were making it in strips of forty mil. So he then cut it down to suit his sprocket system, and he he'd invented that. So his invention was that there were four sprockets per frame, which means that I think you get something like sixteen frames per foot, and it was all about you know, what could run through his machine mm. at that time uh, to create a, uh, a human looking frame rate. And again, that's another thing <laughs> I haven't even looked at. What was the frame rate that they decided upon that actually looked naturalistic? Because I yeah. think some of the early films were too, uh, there was, too, there, you know, there was too much gap between 
um, frame movement to yes. it, for, for it to be looking re- realistic. Anyway, so he ended up with this four f- sprockets per frame, which meant that he had to cut the 40 mil frame uh, strip down to 36 mil, which actually makes a 35 mil mil yeah. frame frame. But um, all the other um, manufacturers were using all sorts of different sizes. Um, and so, yeah, our initial question was, why are we suddenly ending up with four to three? Um, and there's lots of um, stories about that. One of them is that daguerreotypes, which were the original plates that were, you know, when you see the guy yeah. with the, with the, uh, the gunpowder going off in the trough and the what's and the, the birdie, head yeah. And stuff, yeah. Those were those plates, and they were measured. They measured six and a half inches by eight and a half inches. Was a fairly you know round standard, and if you take that proportion, it is very close to the four three. But the other one is um is of you know what size do you want the frame to be? Uh, and Edison was asked that he used his hands when he used his thumb and his forefinger to create a box. Okay. Um, and, you know, just literally at an assistant, eh, kind of that shape. And you can imagine, you know, the usual kind of slacker art director. That's the yeah. kind of thing they would say, or the boss, or the well, client. Yeah, if, you, if you kind of twist one hand around the other way, and so you've got your finger to thumb, thumb to finger. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It's kind of wide. No, but that's kind of widescreen, isn't it? That's not 4-3. Yeah, or but he, I, oh, hang yeah, on. This, he'd lost hang he'd, on. he'd lost his four fingers. No, no we have on. to we have to stop because I've got the shortest thumbs in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so it all goes out the window. No, I think you're right. If you measure that, it looks more sixteen nine to than four yeah. four over three. But anyway, that's that, that's the apocryphal story, um, and I haven't managed to substantiate whether that's true or not. Um, but anyway, whatever happened, they and you know he he started developing this film machine, which quickly. Uh, caught on and that meant that um it became uh, he patented it but he lost control of the patent and therefore and he had no control of it in europe so they mm. nicked his system and soon cinemas and filmmakers across europe which was probably the biggest film market at that time uh pre-second world war um and that's why that format became so popular. It wasn't because that's the naturalistic way of looking at things or, uh, or any other reason. It's just that, uh, they stole the technology and before right. he knew it, he had no control over, over why, uh, uh, over the profits from it. So it became a standardized industry thing. And then it was adopted in 1909. I just, I just need to stop you a second. What my is going on? Is just, is just, my There's, pie has just arrived. Your pie is laughing. Yeah. <laughs> And it's got a puff pastry top. And, uh, yeah, it's it's gone slightly crazy. My wife is finding it terribly amusing. I'm going to have to take a picture. Uh, so, sorry. I, I had to interrupt there uh, momentarily. Sorry. No, so in 1909, they standardised this uh, four sprockets per frame, 35 mil uh, format. And that meant that yep. it quickly across the globe became the adopted format but there's no actual backstory of why the four by three but anyway i've given a couple of examples um but our next thing is why why widescreen why did it why did uh, you know uh, filmmakers decide that they needed to widen out because Mm. i think we should jump now to the human eye um because my first kind of my my first theory was the reason that we want to um that four three was uh, so popular is because that's the proportion that humans see in. Um, but actually, when you start dipping into that, uh, human sight becomes incredibly complicated. And there were, uh-huh. lots, of, there were lots of graphs and uh, all sorts of things that made my nose bleed. So I kind well, of It's gave, very hard to even describe the shape of your field of vision, isn't it? Yeah, because it depends what you're looking at. And what I didn't yeah. realize is you have a blind spot, but it's not to the left or to the right of you, it's actually in front of you. It's nine degrees to the left or right. I can't remember which one, but... Um, Does it not depend on how big your nose is? <laughs> no, there is a there is a blind spot there, and your, and your mind makes up what is uh, going on in that space. Wow. Yeah, you've got Photoshop built in. I just texted you a picture of the pie, by the way. <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking at it. Wow. That's a Frey Bentos. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? It's like Jodrell Bank. It's wow. picking up 
emissions from somewhere. Oh, gosh. Um, so you, you delved into what the human eye sees and quickly um, retreated from that avenue of thought, did you? Yeah, well, we see, uh, le- so left to right, we see in 120 degrees. But if you then okay. make, make that binocular, um, so you, yeah. so e- each eye sees 120 degrees. And by the time you've averaged that out, it's 200 degrees um, right. that we see in. And up down is about the same 120, 140 degrees, to, again, depending on the side of your beard, the size of your beard or your bouffant. Yeah. Um, so it kind of comes to one to four, which is, it's getting there for four to three, you know, for that sight of of yeah. what we see. Because actually, although we think we see in a huge long slit, uh, you know, like very much like a cinemascope mm. widescreen, we we don't. We we do see above us and below us, and which is why I kind of convinced myself that watching the IMAX proportions of film was so compelling because it felt like you were so involved in what was going on. Yeah, I must admit, I you know, we talked about this when we talked about Dunkirk, but I missed out already on the IMAX experience because I was just sat way too close. Mm. Um, so it was a headache and neck ache with the overriding senses for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so getting back to the widescreen element, again, I think this might be apocryphal because I'm not sure if this is the definitive answer as to why we, uh, why cinema, why film developed widescreen. But the... I think the kind of most often um, uh, uttered story is that it was introduced to differentiate itself from TV, which was seen as a threat in the fifties. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what I, I, I. Yeah, exactly what I'd seen. But if that's true, um, why were they trying to develop widescreen cinema in the twenties? Uh, yeah, I don't know. No, neither do I. But I've got a slight. Ex- well, well, it, I've got well, an explanation. It, okay. The word is tanks. Yeah, like most inventions, when uh, technology really gets pushed out from pressure, it's normally military based. And uh, there was this chap called Professor Henri Chrétien, and he worked. Uh, he was an op- uh, an optical scientist. I don't know what you call them. Uh, anyway, he made he made le- yeah he made lenses. And he was commissioned by the French government in the First World War to come up with a periscope that could show um, a widescreen area when it looked out of a tank uh, so that they could see targets, uh, et cetera, um, and, and, you know, ha- have a good lookout. Mm-hmm. And so he invented this, uh, th- um, this thing that he called hypergona, which um, in one article I said sounds like a swollen um, sex yes. organ, but um, but it clearly isn't. Uh, but it's anamorphic, which you might have heard uh, it, when you look at um, uh, I don't know if you open up After Effects or whatever. Um, mm. And what it was was it, it made uh, made a lens that isn't circular; uh, it's kind of oval shaped. And so when you look through it, it stretches the image. Um, so in the tanks, it just stretched it naturally. Um, in, in real life. So when you looked at it, it would have just yeah. been uh, an elongated image, but he spent the next 20 years perfecting this um, for filmmaking. Cause he obviously saw that there was profit to be had. Um, and it's only in the forties uh, and fifties, I think when Hollywood or maybe the thirties, when they were looking for that differentiating kind of, um, cause I think America went to TV quite early, didn't they? They weren't. Yeah. Uh, so they were looking for that thing to boost um, uh, cinema goers. And they discovered that he had this system that was ready to go. And what it was, was basically just a lens that you fitted onto the film camera and a lens that you fitted onto the projector. And one stretched the image and the other one put it back into the proportions that it was meant to be. Um, and, I just love one. I love the word hypergona. I just think that's (laughs) super cool, isn't it? Um, But two is, I think I really think that's a, that's a really compelling reason why, you know, how the technology from, you know, Periscope was adapted to the cinema because one thing I haven't said is why, why they suddenly needed to, to go to this and that when silent films 
um, around. They just used the standard 35 mil width. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they suddenly had sound, they had to run the stereo soundtrack uh, down the left-hand side of the film. So that meant that the film became the fill the area to put the film on on the on the um, on the actual film was much smaller. Yeah. So therefore, they either lost quality, or uh, they could then you know they they were trying to work out ways of either did they make the film bigger, which was much more expensive, and then they'd have to replace all the equipment, mm. or could they retrofit all of the existing equipment with this new uh, hypergona lens, which is what they did, um, to stretch. Or to basically first squeeze the image, and then when they played it back through uh, a cinema, it then stretched it back out wide, which yeah. is super cool, isn't it? It is. So, it, yeah, it's uh, the reason that that uh, widescreen came about was uh, was a technological one of trying to fill as much uh, film as possible. Yeah, they tried other things, hadn't they? I can't remember which. Well, Cinerama uh, was the first one. So was Cinerama, that the one that ran ran the film sideways, or was uh, that Vistarama? No, well, no, that's um, uh, IMAX actually does that. Yeah, IMAX does that as well. Yeah, yeah. But there was there was a, an old widescreen. Yeah, is that Vistarama? It, but the, Quite, the, yeah. I think the first one was Cinerama, which actually used three f- cameras that kind of blended the image. But you would you'd written down one that was even more amazing than that. Had <coughs> I? Yeah, it was <laughs> the film was Napoleon. Oh. Well, yes, but that was the first film that used uh, a four. Was it a four one? Yeah, <laughs> which is insane. But it, but it only used it for the final, the final few uh, uh, kind of sections of the film. Right. And the rest of it was standard. Oh right. Um, yeah, but yeah, that thing about um, whatever it was, Cinerama, which was three cameras. And then the film was run, three separate reels of film were run uh, simultaneously, kind of adjacently and projected at the same time. Just seems like the, the craziest way to try and run <laughs> a film. A- and apparently that the, you could see the the joins yeah, because the, it technically wasn't joined, but you could see where the... Uh, the films were separated, but the screen was curved, like uh, the the you know Samsung were trying to sell these awful curved yeah. televisions um, to give that impression of uh, mm. you know if you're far away enough from a from a curved screen, the the eye changes it into yeah, but you have to be at that sweet spot, don't you? Yeah, so most, you, you, most people in the UK side. don't have lounges that large, do they? Well, no, but what if you're you know there's two people sat at opposite ends of a sofa? Mm. The sweet spot's going to be in the middle where your cat's at. Sweet cat. Yeah. It is absolutely, I could go on, bang on for ages about this, but it's... Um, but there's, there's loads to think about. We haven't talked about kind of golden ratio or anything like that, and the fact that none of that really seems to have had an impact in film like it did in art. No. So um, getting back to the original um, article, which is called Frames and Containers on, on Vimeo, um he talks about the frame inside. So the container is the 35 mil that we've just banged on yeah. for the last half an hour. But the can, the, fra- the the frame inside that can change. So, Yeah, this is, I think, the best part of this film. Yeah, so he talks about that some films are made where they actually just letterbox it. So you get black, out, mm. black up and bottom and, and even, uh, you know, extending left and right. But when he said he says it's really really powerful is it's when it's used as sort of windows or frames in the actual picture that they're filming at the time. So that might be a doorway or most effectively a mirror, and yeah. even more effectively when it's a mirror <clears throat> without seeing the reflection of the ob- of the person who's acting at the time in the mirror. So that they are so they're literally the only scene that's going on at the time is the mirror reflection. Which is a is a super yeah. cool way of uh, of portraying something, and something that I think that uh, design could could definitely benefit from looking at that kind of that relationship between the viewer and the object, um, and start playing with that, um, especially in websites uh, to make yeah. it a little bit more interesting because you've got this flexible uh, container that you never know what the size is. Uh, you as a designer have that kind of power over what the relationship between the information that you're showing at the time and the actual container uh, 
as it sits. And I know that's probably way highfalutin, too highfalutin for especially me, um, but for most designers, because you won't have time. But if you are actually looking academically at, you know, the proportions between the screen and uh, object, um, then I, I think you could really look at cinema and get some uh, uh, some really good inspiration from, from yeah. what they're doing. Because they, 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 cinema definitely has that edge, doesn't it, in terms of artistic endeavour over design, would you say? Yeah, I would, absolutely. <clears throat> also, I think that that kind of flexibility of cinema and and screen-based dynamic stuff obviously lends itself uh, more easily to different containers and formats and framing than print. Absolutely, because you are uh, you are creating something that is analog that you can you know it's it's almost like fudgy fuzzy logic. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're in print, you're very much definite. Uh, you have to be very precise about the size of the frame yes. because that's the printed medium, and yeah. also what you put on it. And I'm sure you know the bolted book is probably a great example of actually breaking those conventions. Mm. Um, but uh, designers don't seem to be doing that and they haven't done that for, for quite a while. No. Um, I think the thing to, can we end the discussion on um, how we're going to jump off to next week, which Certainly. is about standardization and how we got to the four, three and trying to find out why, why we had the, this TV ratio. Um, why do we continue to obsess with old standards even after they're defunct? So for example, most films i'd say probably i don't know what the percentage is but let's say 80 90 of films made now are made digitally why are they still being made in a 35 mil format why are they still being made widescreen why aren't they square like you said well you know like instagram has sort of i don't even think it's it's um it's revived a square format of photography i mean yeah square photography was popular in the 19th century but i don't think many people know that but it seems to be popular doesn't it Mm. Um, so why aren't we making films that are square? Um, and, uh, yeah. So why are we obsessed with the analog version of things, you know, records, um, yeah. printed media, uh, what other things are there that Books are out over there? Kindles? Yeah. Why, why, why are we? Um, and that's something that we're going to talk about next week, which is, uh, the appeal of the analog. Looking um, forward to that. I'm yeah. Good. Oh yeah, why 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 bicycles and not electronic uh, hoverboards? Yeah, we can both get on our high horses. <clears throat> I'm sure. I don't like horses. <laughs> uh, how are we doing for time? Should we? Yeah, have we, we got time for anything else, or should we go for pies? Let's go for pies. Have you got anything important to say about no. website of the week? Sorry about that. That sounded like a disaster. You didn't drop it again, did you? I might have done. No, I didn't. I dro- I dro- I, I got it's much bo- safer when your wife brings you your pie. No, there were two pies in the box, and I got the box out of the uh, the fridge because I wanted to read some of the copy. I think I might have read the copy from this before because it was so bad. There's a chap called Charlie Bigham, uh, and they are available in Waitrose pies. They come in two two pies in a box, and they are like nice sort of ceramic um, pie dishes. But uh, the copy on it, turn off the phone. Dim the lights and crack open a bottle. Steal back some time by letting Charlie prepare you a truly delicious meal. All you have to do is relax and enjoy each other's company. That's quite um, something, isn't it? Yeah, set in Trajan uppercase. Nice. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah, no thanks, Charlie. I don't want to eat with you. But you didn't uh, rate his pie last time you had no, a Charlie Bingham pie. Did. No, I didn't. Don't tell my wife that. Uh, go on, then you can you can tuck in first. Right, it still looks like puff pastry draped over a bowl of you know um, in right. a la sort of Break Brothers pub. Yeah, so very pale pastry, and um, even though I glazed it as per the instructions, um, but it's got mushroom and chicken inside. I'm going in. Sounds all right. Hmm. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, the inside's yeah. really good. Pastry is pathetic, and it's barely a pie because a pie. Sh- should, as we know, should have pastry yes. all the way around it. Um, but it tastes like Campbell mushroom soup with chicken in it. Mm. What's not to like? It's, it's not bad, is it? No. I'll give that a six. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'm tucking into a, a frozen 
it's no longer frozen. Sainsbury's uh, steak and ale pie with a short crust pastry. What do we call it? The bottom container, short crust pastry, and then a puff pastry lid, which is about a foot tall. Um, it's quite, it's quite dry. The pie inside, um, and hot. So bear with me. That's some crisp pastry though. Yeah, that's all right. Nothing wrong with it. Not not a really deep flavour. Oh, the pastry's quite nice. The meat's quite tender. Um, it'll get a solid seven from me, I think. A, froze, yeah. a frozen Sainsbury's pie gets seven. Mm. Yeah. Oh my God. It's all right. How was the beer? It was actually delicious. Yeah, my mum's good. I really, really good. Quite a surprise, a, a really dark, deep stout, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not a fan of them. Um, I, although, you know, I like a Guinness, but these are different. Mm. They're very sweet and molasses. They've got mm. a, a treacly taste to them. Yeah. But obviously at 10.5%, it's made me feel quite squiffy. So um, I'm going to go. Yeah, as well you should. I'm going to go finish my pie. Yep. And then uh, I'll look forward to next week's podcast about the, the love of the analogue. <laughs> yeah uh well uh thanks for listening uh mr mcginty's goat and we will see you next week will do <laughs> right, take care bye bye